Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat learning session with TBA rabbinic intern Cheva Lerman. This morning we're going to be going through a story that's at the end of the parasha, one that we did not read in the triennial reading this morning. Um, so it'll be Leviticus 24, verses 10 through 16. And um, so if you don't get a source sheet, you can follow along in the Chumash, and, uh, and I'll just add the Midrash aloud so that we can, uh, so everyone can be on the same page. Uh, it, we're going deeper into some of the sources that I referenced in the Taste of Torah this week, so we'll see who read it and did your homework. Um, <laughs> and, um, and we'll... So just to summarize, these six very terse verses, um, there's a story here about a man. It says, he came out from among the Israelites. Uh, that's the translation in its time. It's Vayetze ben Isha Yisraelit v'hu ben Ish Mitzri. So he is the son of an Israelite woman, and he's the son of an Egyptian man, um, which immediately starts setting off alarm bells for the rabbis. How is this possible, right? And then, um, and then it says, a fight broke out, right? They fought in the camp, him and an Israelite man. No details on why the fight, right? Um, and then it says, Vaikov ben Yisraelit et Shem Vaikalel. So he, this man Vaikov, which is something we'll come back to, he pronounced the name of God in blasphemy. He cursed it. He was brought to Moses, the aside of his mother's name, Shlomit Batdivri, of the tribe of Dan. And then it says he was placed in custody until the, God's decision could be made clear to him. And God spoke to Moses and said, Take him outside the camp. Uh, and let all who were within hearing lay hands on his head and let the whole community stone him. And that's exactly what they do. Um, it's a cheery story, clearly. Um, <laughs> so, so let's go back to that first verse. Let's start again at the beginning. Verse 10. There came out a man, the Israelites, a man whose mother was Israelite and whose father was Egyptian. The fight broke out in the camp between that half-Israelite and certain Israelite. So shout out for me some of the questions that arise from this verse that you might have as a reader. You don't have to project into the rabbis unless you want to. But what are the questions that either you or the rabbis might have as they see this text? Why are they fighting? Why are they fighting? Who started it? Who started it? Was there any physical harm done? Why is it important that one was half Israeli? Why is it important that one was half Israeli versus full Israeli? Absolutely. Why does it start with the word by What is the bottom? Why does it say by There was a man. Yes. Why does this start with by and he went out? Right? Why doesn't it just start with there was a guy who was this way and he fought? Every one of these questions is an opening for Midrash and an opening for analysis, right? So there are a lot of Midrashim about this section of the Parsha. Um, one of them is in Midrash Tanchuma uh, on specifically this verse, Vayetze ben Isha Yisraelit. Can I have a reader for it? 
Can you read loudly? Yeah. English? Yes. Now there went out the son of an Israelite woman whose father was Egyptian. From where did he go out? Rabbi Chia Bar Abba said, he went out from the parashah on genealogies. When he came to pitch his tent in the camp of Don, they rejected him. Now they said to him, you have an Egyptian father, but it is written, each with his standard under the banners of their father's house and not of their mother's houses. Immediately he began to utter the name of God and curse it. Okay, so this is one of the Midrashim about why they were fighting, right? Where was he? So where did he go out from is the first question. Um, Rabbi Chiyabar Abba says he went out from, he, he went out mifarashat yochasin yatza, like he, from the, parsha, from the division of the genealogies or the, the accounting of the genealogies or the analysis of the genealogies. There's a lot of things that parashat can mean here. Um, but we get this idea that he's going from a place of what is his heritage, Right? What is his place in this Jewish community when he has an Egyptian father? And we know from several verses later that his mother is Shlomit Bat Divri of the tribe of Dan. So we know that he has a, a tribe through his mother. Now, does Judaism, would you usually say Judaism goes through the father or the mother? Mother. mother. When did that rule come along? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes, because you're saying he is Israelite because his, or you must be through the father to be Israelite in this moment. Yeah. Right, because it says specifically in the text that one of them is Ben, is the son of an Israelite woman, but the other one, the other guy, he's just an Israelite. We don't know anything about his mother's heritage. So therefore, the distinct case here, the 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 marked case, as one might say in like an academic setting, is the son of the Israelite woman. He's the different one. So to be an Israelite in this situation, you would have to be of an Israelite father, which we already know he is not. Right? We know that whenever there's details, that when there are very few details, the ones that are given matter a lot. And we also note that it says several times that he's the son of an Israelite woman. So whether that's distinguishing him as uh, non is like non-Israelite or half-Israelite or unclear of his Israelite status, or it just matters a lot that he actually has one Israelite pers- m- m- parent. You know, it's unclear. Yes, Aaron. I always took this to be, um, you know, because the Arab Rab is also within the children of Israel. So to me, this comes to say this person is not an Arab Rab. This person is more connected to the people, but not quite the same way. Who's if someone had both a mother and a father, whatever whatever that means. So this person's different than an Arab rock, but not a true Israelite that has both, both parents coming from. Right. Okay. So it's possible that his father is part of the Arab Rav that it says left Egypt, right? And his father is an Egyptian traveling with the Israelites. Right. And his father can be in the camp. He's a part of the camp, but not, not an Israelite. Right. Father can be in the camp, but is not... I see, I see you, Miriam. I'll get right to you. Um, his father is perhaps not of the camp, but he's with the camp. He's part of the extended Jewish-adjacent family. Yeah. 
Um, definitely a possibility. And what's one of the th interesting things is that I didn't find any midrashim that made that, right? that postulate that. Yes, and and it absolutely occurred to me. I mean, this caught my attention immediately because my mother converted. So like, I have a lot of non-Jewish family, and so to have this like interfaith example that doesn't end well is like a really complicated thing. Yes, Miriam. It is a matter of perspective on where, where he fits and how he feels about it, right? But he doesn't just get to decide how he feels about it because at the end of this midrash, he has been rejected, right? He's asked for a place in the community. Here it says uh, he asked to make camp in the tribe of Don where they were traveling. There's another version very similar to this midrash where it says he went to Moses and asked what's my nachala, um, what's my like portion of inheritance once we get to the land of Israel, where will I live within the tribe of Don? And Moses says, you don't get to live within the tribe of Don. And you don't have a place in our community. And isn't it nice that you're walking, taking a walk with us in the desert? You know, and that's a hard thing to take. That's a, you know, so he, so this is a very, I think, emotionally astute midrash that says that when someone's rejected, they, they react poorly. It's very painful. Um, now, Marshall had said, why this word Vayetze? And that's a really good question. It's odd that it starts with Vayetze, right? So let's hearken back to another member of our community who has this ambiguous mixed Egyptian Israelite heritage. Who would that be? Moses. Moses also comes from this place of like, is he Israelite? Is he Egyptian? He transitions from one to the other. And he also has this story where it starts with Vayetze. So in Exodus 2, Vayihi bayamim hahem, vaydal Moshe, vayetze elechav, vayar besivlotam, vayar ish mitzri, make ish ivri me'echav. So sometime after that, when Mo so sometime after that is coming off of Moses's growing up in the palace. So there hasn't really been that, we're Exodus 2 here, right? Like not much has happened at this point in Shemot. And it says Moses grew up, and as soon as he grew up, there's this story that he went out among his kinsfolk. Who are his kinsfolk at this point? Who knows? <laughs> it's not specified. And then, uh, and, but he says he witnessed their labor, so we assume that it's probably talking about the, the Hebrews, but he doesn't see himself as Hebrew yet, right? Or does he? Because he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite. And... Um, and the text says one of his kinsmen. What's the end of the story? I don't have it here in the text, but can someone shout it out? Murder. He kills him. He kills him. And then he comes back the next day, and the Israelites look at him, two of them look at him, and they say, like, they, they, they threaten. They're like, what, what are you going to do? Like, and so he, he's like, oh my God, everybody knows, and he runs out of the, the camp. Right? So Moses has this complicated moment of killing this Egyptian taskmaster while still living in Pharaoh's house. And it's unclear what he thinks his identity is in that moment. So let's go to the next Midrash Tanakhuma that's on um, Shemot uh, 2. Sorry, it says 9 2. So, yes. Um, so we're turn the page. And um, I'm just going to read this for time and also so people on Zoom can hear. But we have this Vayar Ish Mitzri Maket Ish Ivri. Okay, so Moses saw an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew. Who was this Egyptian? The Midrash asks. He was the father of the blasphemer, the father of this man who fought in the camp. 
The Egyptian was beating the Hebrew who was the husband of Shlomit Bativri. Why was he beating him? This overseer was in charge of 120 men who he would dispatch to their labors every morning at the time of the crowing of the cock. He said since he was wont to send them to the respective tasks, he would enter their homes. And he noticed Shlomit, daughter of Divri, was perfectly beautiful, without blemish, and he was anxious to possess her. Long story short, he goes into her home and he sleeps with her while he has sent her husband off to work. And the husband comes back and says, did he touch you? And she says, yes, but I thought it was you. I mean, we have other stories of yes, but I thought it was you, right? We have, there's, there's uh, Jacob being confused about like, or, you know, Rachel and Leah. So like, okay, we have some cross-reference and perhaps other textual support for this confusion. And then um, when the taskmaster learned that the man was angered by what had occurred, he forced him to work harder and beat him. Responses to this midrash before we go any further. There's a lot to unpack here. A lot of baggage. Yeah. Where do you think Moses would come into this moment if he knows that he killed the father of the man who's now fighting with him in the camp? What would Moses' emotional state be as he receives this petition of, I want, the man hasn't fought yet, right? The man approaches him and says, I want a spot in the tribe of Don. And Moses knows, according to this midrash, that he has killed this man's father, or yes, he killed this man's father, and this man's father had fathered him illegitimately. I see a lot of looks like. <laughs> he should recuse himself. He should recuse himself. And instead of recusing himself, which would be rather easy because he could just say, God, you decide. In the Midrash in which he's being petitioned for a spot in the tribe of Don, he doesn't ask God anything at all. He doesn't look to God and say, what do we do with this? Like he does in, Tzalofa, in the Daughters of Tzalofahad's story, where they say, Moses, we're women and we want a spot in our inheritance. He asks God. Later, he asks God, hey, this man has fought in the camp and he's blasphemed your name and what do we do for him? Right? There are many examples of him asking God what to do and in that Midrash, he just responds. It seems to me like Moses is a very emotional response to this man. Right? There's not a lot of, he doesn't take a pause, he doesn't reflect, he just reacts to this petition from a place that doesn't involve logic and doesn't involve God. It doesn't involve like bringing his holiness to bear on that moment of decision. Now, the daughters of Tzalofachad, to move forward a little bit, is, um, is something that also catches the rabbi's attention because we have this, this uh, element of connection with that story. What do you note about the, the fighter's mother's name, Shlomit Bat Divri? How would you consider someone who's named Shlomit? Shalom being part of her name. Peaceful. To create peace. Okay. Or wholeness. Yeah. Yeah. And Bat Divri? What's Divri? What, what is the root of Divri? Chattering a lot, perhaps words, yeah. Perhaps, she, perhaps rather than like, perhaps she's chattering a lot, and her words have very little substance and weight. Perhaps she speaks well, and her words have a lot of substance and weight. It's not clear just from having that, but we know that words are an important aspect to her character. 
We don't hear of this divri in any other circumstance. This is actually the only named woman in, ex in Leviticus, uh, which is interesting. So like, what does, it what does it mean that Shlomit bat divri is her name? Any other thoughts on divri, on, on like words and the power of words in this, the context of this blasphemy story? It wasn't Devin or Dever also as one of the plagues. Hmm. It's maybe a totally different root, but at least the, the letters are the same. That's great. The word dever is one of the plagues, right? Is the is the cattle plague. So like what do we do with the fact that perhaps she's connected to the idea of a plague? So the rabbis focus in on that speaking part. And there are midrashim that say that she chatters, that she like speaks openly. But there's also a midrash that connects her to daughters of Tzlovachad, not because they're, you know, they're in tribe of Menashe, she's in the tribe of Don. They're daughters of Tzlovachad, she's the, the daughter of Divri. But when the daughters of Tzlovachad are given a good ruling, it says, Ken benot Tzlovachad dovrot. These women speak. The implication being they speak well, they argue their case well. And so this idea that the daughters of Tzlovachad were able to give something of substance to Moshe to like work with and were able to make a case in a way that felt like he could receive it. And this man who received rejection was not able to make his case in as compelling a way. And perhaps he knew what he was doing with the... Um, with his blasphemy by cursing the name of God. This verb he uses, by the way, it says Vaikov, the name of God, and that, that root is Nunkuf Vet, which is the same as Nekeva, feminine, but both of those come from the root of to pierce or to, to um, punch a hole through. And it's an it's a aggressive sort of um, term, and it also can mean to pronounce, but it's not just like to say. Right, it's a it's a forward pronunciation of something, and so when it says Vaikov et Shem Adonai, that or Vaikov et Hashem, it's like he really pushed for something there. He was he he knew what he was doing, and we see elsewhere that there's this idea that like yes, pronouncing the name of God can bring death. Um, Job is a good example of this. Job's wife at one point says to him. Uh, <laughs> Barech Elohim Vamut, like like pronounce God's name, and, and she says bless God's name. But like, if you pronounce God's name, you'll die. So, and sure enough, does someone have a chumash in front of them? Can they read um, verse where? Um, uh, verses fifteen and sixteen. Yeah, Jake. And to the Israelite people speak thus, anyone who blasphemes his God shall bear his guilt. If he also pronounces the name Adonai, he shall be put to death. The whole community shall stone him, stranger or citizen. If he has thus pronounced the name, he shall be put to death. Right. So we have, um, this is one of two narrative sections in Leviticus. What's the other one? The death of Nadav and Avihu. In both of these stories, we have someone who does something and then they are killed for it, and out of them being killed for it, we get a commandment to not do the thing that they did. Right? So these are cautionary tales without having prior information on what the commandment is that they shouldn't be doing. Ex post facto law, it's a hard thing to, if it sits poorly with me. Right? Like that, that's not really how I would want to be issuing any sort of law. 
but this is what we what we receive. And so finally, the execution of his um, of his being, his execution is in verse 14. So let's turn to the last page of the source sheet. And the people take him out and they lay hands upon him. This Samhu, we had this actually in last week's parasha, but for a different purpose. Does anyone know what laying, laying on of hands happened last week? Transferring the sins of the people onto the goat for Azazel. So by laying on hands, they transferred their sins. So when we're trying to figure out what does it mean that in this moment, before the man gets executed, all the people who heard him curse God lay their hands upon him, Okay, we have one, there's a transfer of guilt, which might mean that the people are guilty in some way, even though they did nothing. So consider that, why might that be? Why are the people guilty, even though they did nothing, yeah? You know, I think about how the the verse ends and you get the rule, you know, the the post rule, and it's for the stranger and the citizen. And I somehow wonder if that's the, the time point, it's like, we brought this person and we were so focused on him because he wasn't a citizen, but really, no, the law needs to be equal and we all have responsibility for how this happens, the same law for all of us. Great, okay, so, so Aaron noted that the law when it's issued is for the stranger and the citizen. So we're getting all of this man's identities encompassed in this law, but still why? Why is this law a problem? Like why? Why does everybody need to be included? Why is it not enough that Jews can't pronounce the name of God? Mary? Could there be um, misuse of blessing words? Because language is a powerful thing in education to help students behave more appropriately use their words. And without language, people are often lost. Yeah. Great, so without language, people are lost. Language is the tool that connects us, and it's a tool for education, and it's a tool for, for everybody being on the same page, the same understanding, right? And that's interesting because we need everyone, what it's implying is we need everyone to be on the same page of Kedusha, right? We need everyone to agree on what is holy and what's important and worth protecting. Because what happens when a society starts getting out of sync with itself on what's holy and what's worth protecting? Falls apart. It falls apart. We need to be on the same page about what's holy and what's worth protecting. And so when the people who hear him blaspheme, they also must put their hands onto him as if he's a, sac- as if he's a scapegoat, right? As if they're transferring their guilt from being kind of part of the echo chamber of his blasphemy, they're saying they're separating themselves from that blasphemy and they're stepping away from it. And hopefully they'll go on to be on the same page, to hold the same values, to be able to speak to each other respectfully and not out of anger. Um, the other moment of smicha in, in the Tanakh we see in Joshua, right? It, well, at the end of Deuteronomy, when, when Moses puts... Uh, his hands upon Joshua to transfer authority. And there's this idea that, that it's both a transfer of guilt and also a transfer of authority. That's why when, um, you know, when people are ordained as rabbis, they're given smicha, right? They're given that transfer of authority. I mean, there's like all sorts of layers on 
you know, being the scapegoat of the community when, <laughs> when you're given that moment. But, um, but it's, there is this idea that like, we hold responsibility as a community for what happens in our midst. Right? And we also hold authority on how to transfer that authority and how to move forward knowing who's leading us and what's on their shoulders. And so, um, so there's a lot to unpack in this section, um, but thank you for studying through it with me. I think that there are many ways in which we could take it, and I'd love to hear later uh, which of these resonated most for you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.